It is also my honor today to introduce you to our capstone speaker, Claire DeGraff. Claire is a speaker, an advocator, a church planter, and trainer of Christian church leaders. He says, following Jesus is the only hope I have of living this life with purpose, energy, and expectation. I hope to end my days on earth still meeting young men at Starbucks who have no interest in God, being the patriarch of my family, cheering them on to godliness, making sad people smile and lonely, laugh, giving the poor hope, pointing wayward men back to their families, teaching the whole counsel of God and keeping myself unstained, God's reputation and mine intact. We cannot hear to wait the words that God has laid on your lips to share with us this morning. The opening sketch word today is fountain. Claire. So those of you in the front, my bandage, my wife didn't hit me, although after 54 years, I'm sure there have been times she's wanted to. I uh, had Mohs surgery, um, so they keep, every few months, they keep cutting and burning things off for me. I tell people by the time I'm 80, I'm going to call it Danny DeVito. I'm going to be about <laughs> four foot tall. So thank you for asking me to be here. I, 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 my wife said, why would they ask you? I said, I have no idea. I was, <laughs> I was clearly an underachiever in school. And uh, if Mrs. Vermeers, my Bible teacher, saw me now, she'd speak in tongues. Uh, she. <laughs> <clears throat> so I want to share a little bit about my spiritual journey to kind of set up what I have to say. And, um, and, uh, and, and I believe that my pre-Christ story will resonate with many of you and with some of your students. So to do that, I'm going to um, read from the opening two paragraphs of my book. I actually did write a book someday. My, parent, my teachers were surprised I actually read a book, much less written. So this is the introduction uh, to it, and it's called My Story and Perhaps Yours as Well, and maybe it is yours as well. Up until age 31, I was your standard issue Christian, the kind Christian schools and churches in our conservative little pound town pounded out year after year like spiritual model tees, mostly in one color, beige. We were covenant children, born and baptized in the church, so we figured we came with a cradle-to-grave salvational warranty. We had our get-out-of-hell free card. We were in. And in the mid-60s, every high school senior in my church was expected to make public profession of their faith unless they were an atheist or Democrat. I was neither, but I had questions. And the reason why I had questions is, uh, I, first of all, I believed, and I always have believed, everything my parents ever told me about God in the Bible. I believed in little Adam and Eve. I bought the whole party line. I mean, I, it was nothing that I didn't believe. But by the time I was in high school, even in middle school, I knew what my God was, not who it was, and it was success and significance. That's not how I was raised. My teachers and my church taught me truth and they loved me well. Uh, no, that's, that's uh, Mrs. Walters taught me to love the classics. Uh, Mr. Rooks um, uh, taught me a love of history and, um, and thought I had some leadership gifts 
And Mrs. Maidendorp, with her kindness, gave flesh to Jesus. The problem wasn't my teachers. In fact, I actually adopted this goal for my life based on their example. You know, I can't remember a single sentence they ever told me, but I'll always remember the way they made me feel. And I've said that to, to my kids, where I've thought about that with my grandkids. We have 20 grandkids, aging from two to 26. And, uh, and I know they won't remember most of the things I've told them, but they'll always remember the way that they made me feel. I made them feel. But nevertheless, all these teachers, um, I get a little distracted because people are watching the screen and not watching me. So I'm kind of just used to that. So, <laughs> so it's still all about me, actually, you know. <laughs> anyway, the point is, these teachers planted seeds in me that they probably never lived to see. And the chances are you're planting seeds in students that you'll never have an opportunity to see either. Now, the teachers weren't my problem, and my parents weren't the problem either. They were simple, kind. My dad was a machinist in a small shop that my, um, my grandfather had. My mother was a clean lady for the Zonovan family, but they were the nicest people you can imagine. In fact, I tell people, the only gripe I have with my parents is that I can't blame my dysfunctions on them. You know, whatever dysfunctions I have, and I have, um, uh, they're homegrown. For the purposes of, uh, uh, of this message, it isn't important for me to let you know how this happened. Uh, but by the time I was 30 years old, I owned a company with 175 full-time employees making parts for office furniture, had a cottage on Lake Michigan, a Mercedes in the garage. I was living large. I was so full of myself, I thought I could sell brass knuckles to Gandhi. At the time, I had been married to my high school sweetheart. I met her in ninth grade. We didn't date until 11th grade, but I was one of these. But the first date, after the first date, I said, I'm going to marry you. She said, are you kidding? You broke up twice with me. Now you're going to be back. Are you going to, you know, just, just total arrogance. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, so I, but I, I believed everything about God. As I was told, I was a Sunday school teacher on the evangelist committee. Um, I was just, uh, I was a twice on Sunday Christian. And then a few days before my 31st birthday, a doctor walked in my hospital room and said, Claire, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and you probably won't live to see your 40th birthday. I'm 74 today, so obviously his prophecy was wrong. Um, <clears throat> I began to think to myself, what are they going to put on my epitaph? He made 13.2% of sales. Who cares? Well, I'd always noticed certain people in my church who were turned on to Jesus in a way that I wasn't. They were always had big zippered Bibles, and they were always hugging and praising the Lord. And 40 years ago, that just wasn't done, you know? And I just thought they were like the Eagle Scouts of Christianity, and good for them. I just didn't see the point. I, I didn't need box seats in heaven. How bad can the bleachers be? I was in. But the, for the first time in my life, I began to consider that maybe I actually wasn't a Christian, a true Christian at all. So I went to a pastor friend of mine, and I said, what do these people have that I don't have? He said, well, they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, how do you find that? I mean, I know he's alive someplace on a galaxy far, far away, but how do you actually do that? 
So he said, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to read the book of Luke, a chapter a day, for the next 28 days, roughly a month. But before you read, I want you to pray this prayer every day. God, teach me everything you want me to know and give me the guts to live it. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And he said, come back and let me know in a month. It didn't take a month. Inside of, I don't know, a week or 10 days, the kind of person that Jesus described bore no relationship to me whatsoever. I, um, I discovered the missing element in my faith. It was obedience. Because faith without obedience is just religion. And uh, I was willing to be obedient if it was easy, it wasn't costly, but not if it actually meant me having to sacrifice much. But I didn't want to give up my life. I, I love my little Mercedes. I, loved, I thought God was going to send me off to Nigeria because being Christian form, either went to, to New Mexico or you went to Nigeria um, uh, if you were going to be a missionary. I was the proverbial rich young ruler. I just spent six months sniffing around the trap trying to find plan B, a less costly and less intrusive way of following Jesus other than actually obeying Jesus. And I, I obviously I couldn't find it. I ultimately um, signed what, I didn't use this term at that time, but I'll do today. I signed a blank check to Jesus. I said, God, I am not, and I knew that when I did that, I was allowing him to fill in the amount. I almost added, but please do, <laughs> don't overdraw my account. I mean, is that, <clears throat> God began doing some amazing things in me, and um, uh, it isn't important to go through all of the details of it. I have found salvation a lot easier than sanctification. So the obedience part of it is still, a, I'm, I'm, I'm working at this constantly. But God so changed the desires of my heart that in 1984, I was 35 years old, I sold my business to a company on the New York Stock Exchange, and my wife said, what are you gonna do all day long? I said, I have no idea. Well, you always have a plan. I mean, like I said, I think I just need to make my life available to God and see which way he takes it. She said, that makes no sense to me. Makes no sense to me either, honey. I just, I just think I need myself, make myself available to God. So for 39 years, I haven't had steady work. I haven't actually had a paying job. But God has given me the economic freedom and the love for Bible and love for people that I have just enjoyed um, uh, caring for people, but, but primarily teaching people what it means to actually follow Jesus in real life, which is the reason I wrote the 10-second rule, you know, my book. For years, I've been trying to, to define what, um, uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I wanted to have a nice, a pithy little, when people say, well, what's a follower of Jesus? It's in eight words or 20 words or whatever it is. I couldn't find that. One day I was listening to a Chinese pastor who I really respected. I got done, I went up to him and I said, how would you define being a follower of Jesus? And he said, well, I don't know how to define it, but I know how you can become one and how you can stay one the rest of your life. And I said, great, what's that? Obey the 10 second rule. Well, nobody can let that go. So you have to ask, well, what does that mean? Just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do and do it quickly before you change your mind. 
So I thought to myself, well, how does that actually work? And over the next number of months, I began kind of thinking through kind of why it works. So most of you have, can uh, um, understand this illustration. Most of us have found ourselves driving down the road. There's a broken down car or a hitchhiker or somebody walking with a gas can or something. And we immediately have this impulse. That's something we really ought to stop and help them out. The minute that happens, another voice, I mean, God's never spoken to me audibly, so when I say a voice, another impression says, no, no, they probably have a cell phone, they've got insurance, someone's probably out of their way. And by the time you have this little dueling voices in your head, you're beyond their out of sight in the mirror, and um, uh, you're on your way. Or you're about to send a text to somebody in anger, and you have this impulse, don't send it, Clark. Don't send it, Mary. But then this other voice says, no, 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 these people have been doing this to you forever. You need to tell them what it is because otherwise, otherwise they're just going to keep doing it. You, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to them to tell them the truth and you send it. So why is it that we so often yield to this other voice and not to Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit has sent us directions all the time, but these dueling voices, I found myself actually losing to the other voice. And I, I, it, when I say it dawned on me, the Holy Spirit dawned it on me, almost everything Jesus taught was counterintuitive. If you think of it, love your enemies. Forgive everyone who, whether they deserve it or not. Give to those who ask of you. Everything he taught was counterintuitive. It just goes against our human nature, even those of us who are born again and have the Holy Spirit living in us. We've got enough memory of selfishness that that this is just it is this doesn't make sense the other thing that we know i i figured out is that every time i'm obedient it's going to cost me something time money embarrassment inconvenience something there's a price that i have to pay to be obedient but if i'm disobedient it costs me nothing i think so then it dawned on me, and this took a matter of months, me thinking this thing, I overthink things too much, but I think this is right. Then it dawned on me, well, if I am going with the least costly option, disobedience, a lot of the times, then I'm actually training myself to be disobedient. I'm rewarding myself for being disobedient. So the 10 second rule is simply a tool I've used and others have used to help us break free from the gerbil cage of cultural Christianity, and just to begin simply obeying Jesus again. I, I have a disclaimer. Don't ever use the 10-second rule to take what job to take, who you're going to marry, investments. Uh, no, 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 no. These are for these pedestrian, everyday kinds of things that, I mean, I had two of them yesterday. And, and sometimes, I, you know, I fall off the wagon. I have to read my own book a couple of times a year just to, just to um, remember to do this, but you know, Jesus' teachings are pretty straightforward. It's all the excuses we come up with sometimes to not obey him that is actually confusing. I have found that the need for certainty is often the enemy of obedience. If you think about that, unless we're certain God is talking to us, then we can feel comfortable disobeying. I don't need any certainty to sin. You think about that. I mean, if I want to sin and do something, I just do it. You know, we don't overthink it. I mean, but, but uh, certain, 
Certainty is the enemy of obedience. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they have to take up their cross, deny themselves, take up their cross daily or the next hour or the next 10 seconds, my read on it, and follow me. So while in a minute, I'm going to strongly encourage you to continue teaching students doctrine and the biblical worldview, there is no substitute in the Christian life for simple obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. I just wish 50 years ago, somebody had actually told me, don't you dare tell Jesus you love him or sing songs that say you love him if you're not serious about obeying him. He loves you, even in disobedience. But if you're disobedient and not obedient, then you're telling him, I don't love you. Whether you that's how he reads it. Jesus couldn't make any clear. I mean, think about Peter at the end of the, the book of John. He comes up to Peter and says, do you love me? Well, of course I do, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, then go do something. Go feed sheep, my sheep. Another time, do you love me? Well, yeah, I do. I just told you I do with my words. Well, then go do what I tell you. Three times. Jesus wanted to drive home the point, unless you're willing to do what I tell you to do, don't you dare say you love me. And I just think our kids, young kids particularly, have this disconnect. And we're going to be raising a bunch of religious Christians who may not even be born again without them understanding there is no following Jesus without being obedient to Jesus. People have asked me, what was the point of all that Christian education that after 31 years, um, <clears throat> you know, I still hadn't gotten the message. I said, you know, for all of those years, my teachers, my parents poured into me. They downloaded truth, if you will, into me. Bible stories, doctrine, um, uh, just examples of how kind they were in Christian church history. The Holy Spirit, like a spiritual search engine, when I came to faith, brought to mind verses that I've forgotten, I even memorized. Facts that I needed to know. The Holy Spirit was storing all of that, all that time. I didn't plan this. He was gracious to me to give me enough life to realize before I died what a selfish jerk I was. You probably have students like me. I was a dreamer and a smartass, frankly. Um, <laughs> now I know you probably don't use that kind of language outside of the teacher's lounge. <laughs> but <laughs> I was always bringing attention to myself, the contrarian. I, you know, I was in the hallway so many times that I thought, Hallways, homeroom. <laughs> but take this to heart. You are downloading both love and truth into students in a way you have no idea how the Spirit's going to use someday. My word will not return void. God plays the long game. But two weeks ago, I was speaking in Holland at a conference. And there's a guy there that I actually had, I was a Calvinist cadet leader back in my pre-Christ days. Those days I, I refer to uh, as, 
I was working on my testimony back in those days. <laughs> so um, uh, this guy was speaking, and I had only seen him a couple of times, and I, um, uh, so he got up to speak, and he said, I want to just say this. Clarity Graff is sitting there. He is the first Christian man who really believed in me. I was shocked. I didn't believe in him at all. He was a pain in the neck. <laughs> but apparently God did. I mean, that's the good news. But I do remember his dad was very unkind to him. And I do remember going out of my way to try to be kind to him because his dad was just rough on him. And I thought, I can't imagine living that way. My dad... Great memory. The point is, you've got kids who are a pain in the ass in your class who you wonder, it'd be, it'd be, you're praying they just stay out of jail, much less. Someday maybe preachers and teachers. The Holy Spirit has a plan beyond your knowing. All you can do is download truth and love into them and await that day that the Holy Spirit calls them. I was actually at a, a church in, in uh, Dyer, and uh, we were doing a thing on evangelism years ago, and someone says, how does a Calvinist evangelize? I said, like a good real estate salesman, my job is to list and show. I don't have to close. My job is to explain the gospel and live the gospel, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to convince them it's true. That takes a lot of the pressure off of me. Well, at the risk of sounding like a suck-up, uh, um, uh, teaching kids today has to be one of the toughest jobs in the world. Both you and your students are being liked and unliked in real time. So for many years, 20 years, every other year, until about four years ago, I led a group of high school and college kids to Europe. We backpacked through Europe teaching biblical worldview and history. And we'd start out in Oxford, Paris, Geneva, Krakow, Poland, Budapest, and I had friends and all of those places, it was a great um, time. And um, I was introduced to Instagram 12 years ago. <laughs> Had never heard of it before. All the, the, so these kids from Calvin and Hope um, uh, said, hey, um, let's all post on Instagram and see once who gets the most number of likes uh, over the next, and one kid had like three followers and the other had eight. I mean, it was just brand, that brand new. And I said, okay. I, so I didn't know anybody, I didn't do it. So they um, uh, did it. And uh, the next morning we got up and one kid, the kid who had the fewest number of followers actually won uh, the number of likes. I said to these kids, you know, I've noticed that last night and yesterday your moods changed all day long as you looked at your phone about who liked you. Now when I grew up, I knew there were people that liked me and there were people that didn't like me, but they didn't like me and not like me in real time. You teachers, I just can't imagine what it's like for you to live and to teach under that kind of microscope where, where, where you are getting messages from parents, from kids all the time, liking you and unliking you, saying unkind things to you, reviewing you on sites, and I just can't even conceive what that is like. I was able to be blissfully ignorant about the people who didn't like me. And I was happy with that. You don't have that option anymore. 
The Holy Spirit's message to you today is that you are both loved and liked by the creator of the universe and the savior of your soul. He is the one who's going to restore and renew you. The Bible verses for this conference is this. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 36, 7 to 9. You know, we read those words, but they are so lofty, so flowery. Something we know that they're true because the Bible, it's in the Bible. But how do we make that a real reality of to us? Every year I try to take a couple of days off by myself in silence, which I'm an extrovert if you haven't picked it up by now. And um, uh, it darn near kills me until the second day to just not have someone to talk to. Um, but I, one of the years that I did this, I took Henry Nowen's book, um, Life of the Beloved. And I didn't get three pages in, I burst into tears and I, it took me five or six tries to get past that, those first few pages. Because what he said in there, he reminded me, and I want to remind you, that there's a promise by God that he says, you are my beloved. And I have to remind myself on days when I wish somebody would hide all sharp objects, that, Clara, you are beloved. I love you. The world is constantly reminding us of our failures, but God is constantly reminding us that we are his. So, long before there were likes, there was love, and you are his beloved. Thank you.